Welcome to Why Are We So Restless? I'm Josh Atro, the Executive Director of the Center for Public Christianity, theologian in residence at Holy Trinity Anglican Church, and one of your co-hosts for this podcast. St. Augustine famously opened his confessions by testifying to the restlessness of the human heart and its cure. Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless till they rest in thee. 1,600 years later, we still seem to be searching for that rest. This podcast is about how that old restless heart that Augustine so agonized over is still with us today, though packaged in some new ways. We hope that you find it refreshing as you consider different ways to attend to the world, your own soul, and God so that you might find true rest in Him. In this episode, John Yates, who serves on the center's pastoral leadership team and is the rector of Holy Trinity Anglican Church, looks at our quest for meaning in life and the burdens we carry because we're not sure who we are. Following John's talk, I'll rejoin you along with my co-host and New City Fellow alumnus, Micah Vandergriff. We'll be joined by a special guest to reflect on what we have heard about how it applies to daily life. So stay with us for the second half of the podcast. Why are we so restless? Talk number two, we're restless because we feel responsible for crafting our own identities. We feel responsible for crafting our own identities. When our youngest son, Alexander, graduated from preschool, the whole family attended the ceremony. Now, never mind the fact that there are now official graduation ceremonies for preschoolers. (laughs) That's, That's not the point of the story. At the ceremony, the director of Xander's preschool read a picture book to the kids and to their families. And in the story, a class of elementary school children were divided into teams, and each team was given a large box and an assignment. Inside the box were an instruction booklet and the component parts for a pedal-powered go-kart. The assignment was to construct the go-kart in preparation for a race between the teams. Now, the hero of the story was a young girl, And when her team opened their box, she discarded the instruction booklet and she set about building not a go-kart, but a flying machine. (laughs) Now, at this point in reading the story, I found myself shaking my head at the fact that a preschool teacher was encouraging her students to ignore instructions. (laughs) Alas, that was the message of the story. As you might imagine... This small group of inspired children succeed in making a pedal-powered airplane, winning the race in a triumph of ingenuity and individuality. And the message was perfectly clear. If you want to succeed in life, kids, throw out the instructions, strike out on your own, and become the creative self-starter you were meant to be. Build your dream, and you'll be a success. Your identity and your future, they're right in your hands. Now, that is one of the foundational myths of modern society. You're a blank slate. There are no rules. Look within. Find your dream. 
then go for it. No one, not your parents or your teachers or the God who made you can tell you what to do or how to do it. Be yourself. Now that message is everywhere. It's everywhere. And we, we are most aware of it in the area of sexuality and gender. Our society has climbed aboard a runaway train that's attempting to completely deconstruct human biology, turning our bodies into tools of our hearts, out of which we devise custom-crafted identities. But that's only the most obvious way in which our society is attempting to throw out the instruction booklet. Alan Noble is an English professor, and he's written an extremely helpful little book called You Are Not Your Own. In the opening chapter of this book, Noble writes the following. He says, the freedom of sovereign individualism comes at a great price. Once I'm liberated from all social, moral, natural, and religious values, I become responsible for the meaning of my own life. With no God to judge or justify me, I have to be my own judge and redeemer. This burden manifests as a desperate need to justify our lives through identity crafting and expression. To walk into any high school, and it's not hard to see the way our society worships self-expression. Take a closer look, though, and you will see the crushing burden that kids carry as they attempt to define who they are. So these teens have been told since they were in preschool to throw out the instructions and pursue their own dreams. But kids don't have the kind of dreams that are capable of shaping an entire life. So what do they do? They go searching online and in the world around them, looking for a style or set of characteristics that they want to emulate and try on. And when they grow weary of one, they try another. And all the while, their lives are crowded with clubs, sports, and special activities that are, that are essentially designed to help them figure out what they love and what they're good at so that they can, come who they're meant, they can become who they're meant to be. So is it any wonder that we're so restless with so much riding on our ability to understand our deepest desires and then turn them into a meaningful life. It's understandable that so many people are burned out and anxious. Now we as believers, as believers were meant to be different, but experience indicates that this modern need to craft our own identity and then justify our existence is just as prevalent among Christians as non-Christians. And one place I see a baptized version of this, it's in the intersection of the way we think about spiritual gifts and the way we view our work, either paid or unpaid. So when we, when we turn to faith in Christ, we're filled with the Holy Spirit who gives to each of us certain gifts for the good of the church and for the building up of God's kingdom. So, you know, Paul teaches about this in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, Ephesians 4. Part of what it means to live the Christian life then is to discover the gifts God has given you and to use them for his glory. There's, there is biblical self-discovery that's good and natural and life-giving. But what we've done with this biblical truth, however, is we've allowed our culture's ideas about identity formation to hijack it. Paul gives far more space in his letters to character formation guidelines for common life, and then the overall mission of God in the world than he does to spiritual gifts and individual callings. 
We, however, we tend to invert those proportions as we think about ourselves. And in this context, the essential question for, for many young Christians becomes, what are, my, what are my gifts? Rather than, what is my character? What is God's mission? So ask any college senior, senior what's weighing on them when they think about the future, and they will not tell you that it is the pr- pressure to provide for themselves that they all know that they have rooms at home that they can go back to. The pressure that they face is figuring out who they want to be and what job best fits that dream. So in good Christian fashion, these young adults ask, what are my gifts? What's my calling? And they agonize over these things. They typically don't ask, what are my obligations? What are the needs around me? They are instead consumed with pressure to understand themselves so that they can define themselves and then find work that matches who they are as individuals and that brings glory to God and good to his people. So in a culture that prizes the individual, that's how we're taught to ultimately justify ourselves. Henry Martin graduated from Cambridge University in 1801 as the top undergraduate in mathematics. He was basically the smartest 20-year-old in England. In 1802, at the age of 21, he was elected as a fellow faculty member of his college, which set him up for a long and illustrious career. But that was not to be. In addition to being a genius in math, Martin was brilliant with languages. And when opportunity arose to travel to India to work on a translation of the Bible, he took it. So at at 24, he left England for India, where he translated the New Testament into Hindustani, Urdu, and Persian, all before he turned 30. Then on a trip to Persia, where he was hoping to correct and improve his Persian translation, he contracted a fever, and he was dead at the age of 31. Martin had famously said in his younger years, let me burn out for God. When I, was a grad, when I was a graduate student in Cambridge in the early 2000s, I discovered that the memory of Henry Martin exercised a profound influence among the undergraduate Christian community. He was held up still as a hero of the faith, a young man who had known who he was and who gave up everything for a brief but incandescent life devoted to God. That kind of life became the goal of every godly undergraduate, to discern your gifts and give everything to pursuing them, fearing nothing but failing to honor God. Now, there's something incredibly inspiring about Martin's example, but it was also stultifying. Before moving to Cambridge, I had lived for several years in London, where I knew a number of recent Cambridge graduates. They had taken jobs in the city, they were making good money, and they were faithfully going to church. But I came to discover that a surprising number of these bright young men and women were slowly walking away from the faith. So they had succeeded in the world's eyes, but they were failing to follow in Henry Martin's footsteps. Instead of looking to be faithful with what they had been given, they felt instead like they were failures. They weren't quite sure who they were, 
and what they were supposed to be doing. And instead of asking why, they simply slid away from the faith, assuming that what God wanted, they could never accomplish. As I reflected on this painful reality, I came to see that the memory of Henry Morton was more of a ghost who haunted the spiritual lives of young undergraduates. They had failed to justify themselves to God in the terms they thought God wanted, burning out in glory after a short life of Christian heroism. And instead of returning to God to ask what he really wanted, they were deciding to walk away. So I see the same kind of tension at work among younger Christians today. We want to be heroes of the faith, using our gifts to God's glory, but we don't know how because we're not sure who we are. Having having taken responsibility for crafting our own identities, we struggle to know how to justify ourselves. And so we fall under what Alan Noble calls the tyranny of self-improvement, trying to hone our gifts and our abilities in order to do better for God. The dark logic behind this way of life is that it rests not on the gospel, but on the fundamental conviction that we're entirely responsible for making our lives meaningful, for making sure that they count for something, for identifying our calling and then pursuing it. That burden is hard to bear. We struggle under its weight in a variety of ways. Some give up, like those frustrated Cambridge graduates toiling away in London. Some find what they think is their calling only for life to intervene leading them to unsatisfying work in an unfamiliar place accompanied by a sense of failure. Others simply find ways uh, of coping. Uh, And this is typically how midlife is spent, right? Coping. Uh, One of the most popular ways of coping is by curating an online identity that mirrors what you would like your life to be like and what you want others to think of your life. So have you, ever, have you ever tried to get to know someone solely by looking at Facebook or Instagram? If you have, then you know what a strange experience it can be. I'm convinced, I'm convinced that some people travel to exotic locations full time. This is all they do. And when they're there, they take smiling, happy pictures of themselves and their children. These people are permanently pleased. Their faces are plastered with smiles. They eat good food. They feast on the beauty around them. Their lives look amazing. That's some people. Other people are engaged in meaningful endeavors all the time, right? So they're always painting or writing poetry or taking care of orphans or (laughs) thinking profound thoughts, all of which are posted online. And if they do, in fact, have to do something like change a diaper, then they write about what a meaningful and life-giving task it is. So these people are incredible. These people are incredible. But of course, we know that these curated biographies are essentially a sham. So after that great picture was taken, the family dissolved into bickering. That fabulous meal of fresh fish on the beach in Mexico led to two days of food poisoning. (laughs) When when they climbed that mountain in the background of the picture, their eight-year-old dissolved into tears, flopped on the ground, and refused to move. 
So try as hard as we might to convince ourselves and others, the lives that we share online, are they're not the lives that we lead. But the self, of course, is still important. We can't avoid this question of who we are. Even though the world gives us a bogus way of discovering who we are, we're still left with the challenge. So how do we discover ourselves? How do we come to learn who we are? How do we develop a clear and compelling sense of identity? Well, the world says, look within. Scripture's answer is far more complex and compelling. And it begins back in the garden. So who are we? First and foremost, we are beloved. We're beloved. So remember that God, when he had completed the work of creation, delighted in what he made. He declared it to be very good. And then he stopped just to rest and enjoy it. To be a creature is to be loved. And this love, it comes before we've done anything at all, either right or wrong. So when, God, when John writes that God is love, it's not an abstraction. He writes with the understanding that in some mysterious way, God is Father, Son, and Spirit. And the inner workings of this mysterious union are defined by mutual love. When God creates... It's an expression of this love. It's an outpouring of that love. And when he forms humankind as the pinnacle of his creation, he does so as the prime example of his love. We aren't blank slates waiting to be written upon. We're not empty vessels longing to be filled. We're not simply the sum total of our deepest desires. We are lovely and we're beloved. That's an incredible thing. And this love, it endures beyond Genesis 1 and 2. On the other side of our catastrophic fall from grace in Genesis 3, God is still love. We are still his creatures. We may be soiled and disfigured, but we're still beloved. And we see that love ultimately expressed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, through whom we're reunited with our creator and experience God's love. So the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism is this, what is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer is, did anybody grow up Lutheran? The answer is that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. I love this first question. I'm not my own. If you want to find buried treasure, you need to know exactly where to look. The world says that we ought to dig in the fertile soil of our hearts. There we understand our deepest desires. We'll uncover the treasure of who we are. But any honest person will tell you that our desires change. And our changing desires are an incredibly unstable foundation for an identity. And there's one, this is one reason why the sexual revolution has brought us to a point where the gold standard for sexual identity is now fluidity. So we're no longer to be thought of as binary creatures, either male or female, nor are we to think of our desire for sex as limited to one type of partner, much less a single partner. The emerging standard is to be cisgendered and polyamorous, undefined, except by the desire of the moment, which once fulfilled is subject to change. The human heart is an unfaithful guide as Jeremiah knew so well when he wrote that the heart's deceitful above all else. There's no buried treasure in the human heart. We must instead search for ourselves 
in the hands of the one who made us and loves us. And there we discover that not only are we beloved, we're also lovers. We know ourselves and we find ourselves in relation to others. So recall what was not good in the garden. It was the fact that Adam was alone. He had no helper, no peer, no mirror in which to see and to learn himself. He needed Eve just as Eve would need him because it was only in relationship to another that he could discover who he was. So loving takes place not only in marriage, it takes place in community. And love doesn't depend solely on sexuality in order to express itself. Our goal as creatures isn't to overcome our limitations and become independent, but to celebrate our dependence, loving God first and others second. And here's the really good news in this. Love isn't something that we have to conjure up as a feeling from within the depths of our hearts. We learn to love as we're drawn into the eternal love of the triune God. Love doesn't originate in ourselves. It originates in our communion with God. So we love because he first loved us. And when we've experienced his love through Jesus Christ, he places us in the family of the church, and this is where we learn to love. Far too many of us think of church as the place we go so that we can be taught how to live our best life. It says, Daniel Grothy writes in his book, The Power of Place, which we're going to return to in the final talk. He says, even good churchgoers can be high-functioning individualists. I love that phrase, high-functioning individualists. Sneaking in the back during worship to hear an inspiring talk for their own spiritual development and then bolting before the benediction is over. Church isn't just the place you come in order to be instructed and fed. It's the place you come in order to learn how to love. And by loving others well, you'll come to discover yourself and your place in God's world. So as Paul writes in Romans 12, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Individually members one of another. So our spiritual gifts, they're not ultimately about us. They're about the community that we're a part of. We come to understand our gifts as we love and serve the body. And this always means learning self-denial, patience, and grace. We belong to God in whom we discover ourselves. We also belong to one another. And here, as we share life and labor, hope and pain, we discover ourselves as well. So you'll never come to know yourself apart from being fully engaged with the family of God. We're beloved and we're lovers. Of course, we're called not merely to love those with whom we've been joined in Christ. Jesus commissions us to love our neighbors, and that extends to all who come across our path. So as we search for the right job or the best expression of who we are, we must consider not just our skills, our hopes, and dreams, but the needs of our community and of our neighbors. The key question becomes, what is God's mission for his people? And only then, what am I called to? We must look to know God's heart of love before we seek to understand our own, and as a means of coming to understand our own.
Well, in the midst of these truths about our identity as beloved and as lovers, it's important to remember that we're also finite and contingent beings. And what I mean by this is that each one of us, each one of us was born in a particular time and a particular place within a particular family system as part of a distinct ethnicity and social class and into a culture with a certain moral framework. And all of those things shape us and help to define us. And we need to understand them in order to understand who we are. We we also need to recognize this contingency as we seek to understand other people. So we are right to say with Paul that I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. But conversion, as you all know, it doesn't erase our personal history or the contingencies of our personality. So we're all astonishingly different. One of the things I've had to learn the hard way as a pastor is that it takes an incredible amount of work to understand another person. To understand his motives, his fears, his dreams, what makes him tick. As we come to, to learn and love others, whether members of the body of Christ or our neighbors who are still estranged from him, we have to exercise extreme patience alongside insatiable curiosity. Only then are we going to learn to take others seriously and come to love them with the unconditional love of Christ. When I was in college and I was struggling with my own sense of identity, I actually knew of Henry Martin at the time. Perhaps his ghost was haunting me a little bit. Um, I wrote a short poem. It's not a great poem. It's probably not even a good poem. But it expressed my understanding of identity in a way that I actually still find to be true. This is what I wrote. I think I was 19 or 20 at the time. Who am I? I gasped. And silence answered back. Who are you? I sighed at last. And peace came breathing in. In I am. Who am I? finds its answer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is known to most of you. Uh, He was a Christian pastor in Germany during the Second World War who was imprisoned for a stand against Hitler and eventually killed uh, while he was in prison. And during his time in prison, he wrote a poem rooted in this same struggle trying to understand himself. It's a lot longer than mine. Um, But it includes a profound reflection on the struggle that even we as Christians have in understanding who we are. So this is what Bonhoeffer wrote from prison. Who am I? They say to me often, I step out of my cell, calm and serene and strong like a lord from his castle. Who am I? They say to me often, I speak with my guards freely and cordially and clearly as if I were giving orders. Who am I? They say to me also, I bear the days of misfortune temperately smiling and proud like one for whom victory is customary. Am I really what others say of me? Or am I only what I myself know of me? Restless, yearning, sick, like a bird in a cage. Struggling for life breath as if one were choking me by the throat. Starving for colors, for flowers, for bird songs. Thirsting for good words, for human companionship trembling with rage over capriciousness and the smallest slight, plagued by waiting on great things, helplessly worried about friends at endless distance, too exhausted and empty to pray, to think, to work, faint, 
and ready to bid everything farewell. Who am I? This one or that one? Am I then this today and tomorrow another? Am I both at the same time? To people a hypocrite and to myself, myself a contemptuous sniveling weakling? Or is what remains in me akin to the defeated army that yields in disarray to a victory already won? Who am I? The solitary query mocks me. Whoever I am, you know me. I am yours, O oh God. Bonhoeffer beautifully captures the internal battle that I think each one of us faces, even as we seek to follow Christ. We're a bundle of contradictions, struggles, and of uncertainties. But at the end of the day, we know that we are known and that we are loved. And that is the root and source of who we are. We're back. Uh, my name is Josh Shatro. I am the director for the Center for Public Christianity, as well as the lead teacher for New City Fellows and the resident theologian at Holy Trinity Anglican Church. I'm here with uh, two of my good friends, Micah Vandergrift. Micah, will you remind everybody what you do and remind me what you do? Yeah, yeah, sure. So I, I work in a technology-adjacent area called user experience. I'm relatively new to it, but um, worked as an academic librarian for about a decade before that. Yeah, and for this uh, podcast, we're joined by uh, my colleague at the center and here at Holy Trinity, Daniel Lee, who's also a uh, former, well, he is a current alumni of the program of, of New City Fellows. Daniel, will you give a brief introduction yeah. to all our listeners? Be happy to. Uh, thanks so much for having me on the, the podcast. And yeah, so I work as the program coordinator for the Center uh, for Public Christianity New City Fellows, and then I also split my time at Holy Trinity as the uh, local outreach coordinator. Great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we are uh, back again discussing the, um, the 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 series. Why are we so restless? Our topic today uh, comes from talk number two, which is on identity. Uh, why are we so restless? Because we feel this sense of responsibility for crafting our own identities mm -hmm. um, given to us from culture. And John gives us um, a different perspective on, 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 as Christians, how we should approach our identity, that we are not just beloved, but we're also lovers, right? So, Dana, I'd love to hear um, your first impressions. What do you think? So I thought the the talk was really helpful in a lot of different ways. It was uh, really powerful to me in in especially the point about um, who we are in Christ and um, that we belong to to someone else and that um, I guess uh, yeah don't have to have the burden of defining ourselves and uh, showing you know proving our our meaning or, or um, justifying our existence you know on on our own. I think. Um, you know, for a lot of people, that that might be a freeing idea. You know, that that's kind of the way that the that that myth is talked about. It's like, oh, we're free to to kind of craft. Um, but I've, I I think it's also um, it's it's really helpful to hear that. Um, no, it's actually not that freeing. And uh, um, what's freeing is knowing who you are in Christ and that you have an identity that that is given and that you belong to someone. And um, so I thought I thought that was a really helpful. Um, truth. So, so Daniel, John sort of starts off in, in the talk talking about, um, and you've already hinted at it here, that we 
we feel like our culture tells us that we have the responsibility to create our own identity. And this is one of those, those fundamental myths of modern society. Um, I'd love to know what, how do you see this myth reflecting in your own life, mm-hmm. past, present, uh, you know, um, in, in your family, in your work, uh, and then what strategies do you, <laughs> how do you, how do you deal with it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think I feel this uh, probably most uh, at a daily level. And I think I, f- I feel it most acutely on probably on social media, uh, because like John said, um, you, you, on social media, you definitely feel the need to, to, to be original, to be unique, to be interesting, to be different. And, uh, you know, cause why do people, you know, look at, they, they don't, people don't log onto social media to see, see me eating, you know, oatmeal, like plain oatmeal for breakfast. They want to see the whole shebang. You know, they want to see like a, a nice, you know, breakfast and that's what gets the likes, right? And, <laughs> um, and they don't want, you know, me saying, tweeting a boring tweet. They, they want to hear something interesting or, or insightful or, or, you know, so, so there's kind of that automatically there's like social media is in, in a way like if it feels built for yeah. that. And so I think that's one, one way you definitely, um, yeah, one place you feel it on a daily basis. Um, outside of social media, um, I definitely feel this pressure, or I definitely felt it when I was younger. And you know, it's in in a way, high school is like social media uh, in person, uh, in the sense that you you always feel like you're you know you're you, you need to express who you are and uh, you know show that you're unique or different. Or um, I used to be in in a certain kinds of music and alternative music and there's definitely kind of a, a form there where you you know the bands that you into you're into that that you listen to you have you feel the need to to show that you're not mainstream that you're not just doing what other people do you find music you listen to music that no one else has ever listened to because uh you you listen to music not not because it's popular but because you're actually a musical person, you're into new new kinds of music that that really expresses who you are, that speaks to you, and and so that, so in in a way that kind of um, yeah, those kinds of subcultures, and even like just the, even the idea of a hipster, is you know <laughs> where there, there's that funny um, that that quote that makes fun of uh, hipsters, like I used to do this thing before it was cool, mm-hmm. like that is such like an expression of that cultural myth, like. Oh, you need to be unique in order to show who you really are, and that you have a unique identity and and craft it as an individual. Any any thoughts or? But but uh, how does that? No, that that's good, mm-hmm. and it gets us gets us thinking. How did those things? What's the problem, Daniel? Like, what's the problem <laughs> with that? Like, I, I want to be creative. I want to be different. I want to, mm-hmm. you know, I'll do you on social media. I I want to shop at thrift stores and show everybody that not only am I thrifty, I'm cool. Mm-hmm. So what? Is there a problem with that? Let's right. let's let's work through this a little bit. Yeah, that's that's a good question because, I, I mean, they're not inherently problematic. I don't think. I do think it becomes problematic when you are defining your meaning mm-hmm. or showing that you're a significant person based on these kinds of things. And that's you know, the more we we live our lives and form our identities on social media or through these kinds of you know expressions of identity or interest, you know, music and then the more, you know, these, these kinds of, yeah, the, these expressions, um, our interests come to define who we are. And, and then, yeah, and it kind of becomes uh, abstracted from, from, you know, our, the rest of our lives and relationships and, and the things that John was talking about. And, yeah. yeah. What do you think, Mike? Yeah, you no, spend uh, a ton of time thinking about yeah, I do. technology and um, media. I, I agree with you, Daniel, that I, it's a, I think it's about where we derive purpose and meaning from, mm-hmm. right? So like the, the moment that we're in right now, it seems like 
influencers on social media are deriving their purpose and meaning from that that mm-hmm. the the representation of themselves in an online space mm-hmm. online space is what gives them meaning right. and i think what what we heard here what what we believe around the table mm-hmm. is that um we are unique individuals, you know, endowed with the, the image bearingness, that the thumbprint of God, um, and representing that is a good thing. But also, we don't derive our meaning from that representation. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm using lots of hand mm-hmm. gestures here that the listeners mm-hmm. can't see. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's a unique. It's unique historically, not only with the technology side, but even clothes become a sense of expressing yourself in a way that I don't think historically that's always. That's not right. been the norm in mm-hmm. human history, right, you know. Right. So, mm-hmm. so in so, in some sense, all of our lives in the um, in a late modern world is about self-expression, right? Mm-hmm. So this this speaks to who I am, you know. And so my, you know, even you know, you have teenagers. It's like I need to I need to express myself, mm-hmm. you know, by what you wear, by what you drive, mm-hmm. by by um, you know what music you listen to, or all these things, or everything becomes a kind of signaling mm-hmm. that hey look this is who i am mm-hmm. this is it, this is this is this is why i'm significant mm-hmm. this is why i stand out right. and with that though most people are pretty unaware of that right because that's the air we breathe that's just the late modern world but with that comes a certain type of pressure to define yourself mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to stand out to be different but what do you do when everyone's trying to stand out and be different so then you even have like, you know, so so this is where, you know, cons- uh, the brands come in, consumerism comes in and says, oh, well, we'll help you be different, you know. And so there's like a there's a commercial for Jeep that's, you know, s- s- with their their brand, the Renegade and Jeep selling, trying to say, be different, stand out, be yourself, buy our mass marketed automobile. You know, (laughs) there's an inherent kind of contradiction in this, right? (laughs) Like, you know, how many people are going to buy, you know, this mass market, you know, mass produced and then mass marketed uh, vehicle with the ad campaign being drive our Jeep to be different, It's just, it, you know, it, there's a self-contradiction right. within that, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But marketers are, are happy to step into that mm-hmm. <laughs> as long as they can convince you to buy that. Right, right. But then they also know you're going to be looking for other ways to be different. So mm-hmm. um, it's ultimately not going to, you're going to continue to mm-hmm. forge an identity and you're going to have to keep doing that. But with that becomes more and more pressure. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that's one of the things that, uh, John's getting at the kind of anxiety that even builds mm-hmm. with that. Yeah, that's that's that restlessness. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you were going to jump in. Yeah, that's kind of like the automobile kind of mass marketed uh, Detroit centered version of like that that you know high school alternative music scene, right? Like I, I want to do something that's different, but hey, guess what? Everyone's doing the same same thing and trying to be different, right? So it's kind of I- ironic, right? And, yeah. I think it's good in the sense that it can be good in the, in the sense that it breeds originality and creativity, right? But uh, and which is good, which is I think uniquely you know part of America, you know, American culture. Um, but yeah, when it's abstract, when it becomes a sole thing, you know, the sole source of meaning or the main source of meaning or purpose or identity, then it becomes you know this this kind of you know extreme pressure. We have to define who we are and and you know show that. Our lives are worth you know, something because of you know we, we we've show, shown it through our, our uh, interests and through our individual tastes, right? 
Yeah, so there was another um, thing I wanted to add uh, to your question. You, you know, you asked the, uh, the original question was, how does this, you know, foundational cultural myth that um, of, of individual, indi individually derived identity, you know, where do I feel this pull and uh, what strategies do I use to resist it? Um, so, so what I mentioned before was a little bit more superficial and kind of on a daily basis, but there's a, there's definitely a, a deeper kind of stronger way I feel this pull. Um, and I would say uh, it, it's a little hard to describe because uh, I have an interesting relationship with this cultural myth and, and, and because of uh, my background, because of how I was raised. Um, so I'm a second generation Korean American and uh, which means I was born here in the States, but my parents had immigrated from South Korea not long before I was born. And um, so on the one hand, part of my identity is formed by that. It's, you know, my, my Korean heritage and, you know, as well as, you know, being an American as well, American born. And um, uh, but but also um, that Korean heritage adds another layer of a kind of complexity to my my relationship with this myth um, and how I feel the pull of it. Um in that Koreans, like a lot of other Asian and um, you know other cultures, are a traditional Korean culture is more collectivistic and more more community oriented. Korean families traditionally didn't think about identity in the individualistic way that we do in the West, and so family structures and ancestral ties are like pretty strong. And so uh, they you're kind of born with a sense of, uh, with a set of givens about who you are, you know, you're the son of, you know, your father and, you know, the, the, the grandson of, you know, and, you know, in, in the West, there, there is still, you know, there are still vestiges of that. They're just not as, you know, um, it's not as determinative of a person's identity as maybe in the individualist these days. And so there's, there is, are those givens and those, you know, community ties and relationships. And I think one of the biggest ways that this cultural myth kind of comes to a head or becomes expressed as in the choice of college, especially for parents and, and kids. They, you know, it's about like what the kid, how the kid is built and like what their gifts and desires and what their career should be. And so you pick the right college that's the right size and the right fit that has the right majors and the right professors mm -hmm. that's just right for the kid. But, but the thing about me is I didn't actually follow this road uh, of making decisions about college this way. Um, I ended up going to the college that was best for uh, for me to serve at my dad's church. I saw other people kind of follow that path of you know going to the, the college based solely on who you know who they were, what they wanted to do with their lives, and and they would kind of have like a brand new life at the end of it. You know, they formed their own friendships, had a new career, completely mm -hmm. kind of separated from their parents. They would visit twice a year their parents, but they basically had a new life, completely separated for, uh, from their parents and from their roots. And for me, it was kind of like. Mm -hmm. I was I still had a lot of continuity in my life. So for me the pull of the um the cultural myth of kind of individual identity formation it comes in that sometimes when I, I occasionally I'll have some regret about the decisions I made because I'll be like oh people didn't go that route and they seem to have had more fun or you know mm -hmm. certain benefits that I didn't have. I I think that's where the pull comes from. It's not so much that I feel it it's more that I regret not having kind of bought into it. Mm. Yeah. Powerful story, man. Yeah. We, we, we talked with, with Catherine Doster mm. um, in session one, mm -hmm. a little bit about, about dependence, like some of our creatureliness um, and, and um, expressed well through Christianity means mm. that we recognize our dependence on, on God. Um, here and, and in your story also, our dependence and our identity 
you know, it mm-hmm. is found in our obligations to community and into uh, a connectedness to mm-hmm. our faith and, and, you know, the faith expressed in, in the local church, right? How do we, Josh, how do we live all this out well yeah. in, in mm-hmm. daily life? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Recognizing that the complexities of what the, you know, how culture pushes identities on us, how heritage mm-hmm. pushes identities on us, but how we, we know that t- together is how we recognize who we really are. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah I, well, I think this is one of the resources that Christianity really gives, and we have to think really careful, carefully about it. Helps us think through historically kind of our moment and, 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 and sift through th- some of that. And it also helps us to think um, how the gospel actually changes how we view identity. And so let me, let me say something about historically speaking. I mean, um, you know, historically speaking, and, and this is kind of coming out mm-hmm. because of the cultural mm-hmm. differences that Daniel shares in his own story is that, you know, for most of human hu- history, people have gotten... Well, I think for most human history, you show up and you ask somebody what's your identity, they're going to look at you like you're strange. Right. Like, what are you even talking yeah, no about? One, no one so, about so, but I, you know, once you maybe unpack that, I think if you could get get that idea across to them, their their, their sense of who they are is from you know um, whether from their from their tribe, from their community, mm-hmm. or from the role they play in the in the bigger community, mm-hmm. often it's inherited, right? Mm-hmm. So if your dad was a, um, a a blacksmith, you were a blacksmith. If, you know, if, if your dad is the king, you're going to be the, you know, you have this function as a king or some kind of uh, role in the court, you know, right? If you have more than one kid, but, um, and so it's very much inherited. And, and I think we can look back on that and see some problems with that, right? Because most people weren't born the son of a king. They were born the son of a peasant or the daughter of a peasant. And guess what? You're not moving up out of that. <laughs> um, as, as much as we love those movies of that happening, the reason we love the mov- those movies is because most of the time it didn't happen. And so, so on one hand, we need to acknowledge that there's something that's happened historically that we can take great... Uh, delight and joy in mm-hmm. that that somebody can grow can be born into um, uh, uh, in, into poverty mm-hmm. and in even a uh, very very difficult and destructive situation around poverty and guess what there's you know they can they can be redeemed out of that they can we have choices mm-hmm. that you if you grew up and your dad was a blacksmith. You've got options. I think we can rejoice in that kind of shift. Mm-hmm. But I think what's happened historically is not only have we made the shift, some gains there that we need to acknowledge. Um, in other words, we don't simply need to be nostalgic about the past. Mm-hmm. Oh, those good old days where <laughs> you had to be a blacksmith. <laughs> like, come on, like folks, like some of this is good. But I think on the other hand, what's happened is this radical individualism now mm-hmm. that we're dealing with right. where, where, no, you just look inside yourself and find the true you. Mm-hmm. And the problem with that on one level is like, you, it's impossible, right? It's impossible to do. We're mm-hmm. always defining ourselves by the communities that we inhabit and people around us. But the other problems as John has, has brought up in his talk is that we're all, if, if you're doing that, you're going to, constantly or you're going to be routinely 
in an identity crisis mode uh, because you're gonna your feelings are gonna change, your circumstances are gonna change, and you will constantly be asking yourself, "Who am I?" You'll constantly be restless, hmm. and so Christianity comes in and says, "Well, number one, uh, you're loved by God, you're a creature, and if you trust in Christ." You are, a chi- you are a child of the king. You're a son or daughter of the king. Mm. And so you have this particular calling in a, in a general way mm-hmm. to care for the world, um, to love God and love, his, and love people. And you have, this, you have this identity as a son and daughter of the king, a baseline identity. Mm-hmm. Now, now from that... And I'm, I'm hopefully I'm, I'm answering your question, Micah. From that, then you still have a family you were born into, a community you were born into. Mm-hmm. Doesn't erase that. Mm-hmm. And so we bring as as Christians, we still bring these beautiful differences and distinctions that make up who we are. Christianity doesn't erase that. Mm-hmm. It's one of the great things about Christianity over the last two thousand years. It's not saying there's this. Uh, there's this one monoculture of what Christianity looks like, right? Mm-hmm. And so there's this beautiful um, multiformity of, 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 of Christians and the different kind of uh, secondary identities that they have. Mm-hmm. And we can affirm that. Mm-hmm. We can affirm those things because we've all stepped into a story that was going on long before we got there. Mm-hmm. And now and we can embrace that. So I'm of, of who I am, um, as you know, as a as a white man with Van as my dad and Deborah as my mom, and and my kids can embrace that. They don't have to hate that. They can appreciate that and love that. But it's not it's not, but it's not ultimate. Mm-hmm. It's not mm-hmm. ultimate. Ultimately, they're you know, mm-hmm. we're children of the King. Mm-hmm. Not only do we get identity out of this, we get unity amongst diversity. Mm-hmm. With right. and so. So our identity crisis as individuals and our identity crisis as a culture, as a society that we're having actually breeds some of the polarization. Mm-hmm. And the gospel resources actually says, hey, you're loved, you're known and you're loved. So you don't have to kind of live as orphans. Oh, and by the way, this gives us the resources to unite even mm-hmm. amongst their you know, mm-hmm. diversity mm-hmm. and and live together mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, it is. Um, so, jo- Josh, like f- following on that, uh, I, I'm, I tried not to do this, but I went to your two recent books <laughs> for, for this uh, talk specifically, um, the the Crash Course in Contemporary Issues uh, Cultural Engagement book, um, which like every chapter, the the head, you know, the the main chapters there are the issues, the topics that in our culture right now, people hang their identity on, right? Mm-hmm. Race, gender, sexuality, politics, work. Mm-hmm. Those are the things that we, um, you know, walking around in the world mm-hmm. would often um, face as someone's identity, right? Mm-hmm. There's a, a so to, to your uh, t- telling a better story, there, you, you know, there's, there's a whole chapter on this. And I really think that what you lay out in, in this book gives us a good model for, for how to respond, right? Um, you've quoted Charles Taylor at, at me and us many times, so I'm going to quote him right back to you here. <laughs> so you wrote, as Charles Taylor puts it, no one acquires the languages needed for self-definition on their own. 
which which just reaffirms that sense that we were just describing that um there's a, there's a community aspect into how, and especially as, as believers as Christians in how we find our identity. Can you contrast that with um, the community aspect that people out there in the world, are, you know, people are finding identities in communities out there attached to things like my political uh, affiliations yep. or or um, the the. Uh, the the club that I've joined at, at my at my college. How do we understand that differently as Christians? Yeah, yeah. So, so it, one of the things it does is it very quickly undermines the myth that you can just look inside yourself. And so we're always going to communities, and so it kind of puts us on an even playing field. It's not that um, it's not that one group one person is doing the church is doing this in community and other people aren't actually, we're all doing this in community so we can own that. And then we need to have discussions about what are the, you know, what are the kinds of communities or or this is how I would would speak more broadly, at least about it. What are the types of communities that are ultimately going to be uh, lead to flourishing for everyone, you know, to, and so for the Christian community actually says, in this, at first it feels like, no, this can't be right. But the Christian community says, here's the good news. Everyone's a sinner. <laughs> mm-hmm. So like, uh, that doesn't seem like good news at first, but it, but it actually puts us like all on this kind of even playing field that like, hey, there's actually no one who can stick out their chest and say, well, I'm, I'm actually more righteous. I'm actually inside myself. Like I've pulled myself up. And, and, and because what's going on social media, as we've talked about before, what's going, it's, there's this signaling and there's this moral signaling mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. I'm more righteous. I mean, we all have that instinct of, you know, the Pharisees in the gospels of saying, oh, I'm so glad I'm not like these, that, those tax collectors and sinners. That is so much of social media. That is so much of what's going on politically. So we look at that tribe, we look at that tribe and say, and we say, thank God I'm not like them. And what what the gospel says is ultimately we're all sinners, um, and 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 so so anything we have is by grace. So Paul, what do I have to boast about? Because everything is by grace, and 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 so that changes, I think, the nature of the Christian community. And then you have the leader of this Christian community, this guy named Jesus, who goes to the cross and dies for his enemies. Whoa. Okay, so if that's fundamental to our identity, oh, and by the way, that leader says, oh, by the way, to follow me, you've got to be willing to follow me there. Hmm. So here's a community that says, hey, actually, um, we're no better than you fundamentally we're, you know, we've sinned and turned. And also two, um, our calling is to love people and sacrifice for others. Well, like, hey, you know, guess what? If this is our fundamental part of our fundamental identity, even if somebody says, I don't agree with those Christians, um, I I would think that this is the type of community that um, (laughs) you would want to live beside you. You would want them as your neighbors. And of course, one of the scandals of, well, you know, let's be honest, one of the scandals and really one of the hard parts of um, 
the history of the church is that we have failed so many times with this. Um, we have failed to do this. And I think part of our problem is an identity pro- uh, problem. Part of our crisis as in the church is an identity crisis. Mm-hmm. Who are we? Who are we really? Where are, do we really believe we're united with Christ? We're kings and, king, kings and queens of, of, the, of the future kingdom that's mm-hmm. already broken in. Mm-hmm. Daniel, I want to ask you about your role as program coordinator for New City Fellows. So mm-hmm. for you know, what, three, four, 20, 15 years now, Mm -hmm. you've been um, spending almost an entire year with groups of, you know, uh, 18 to 20 people, uh, beginning or middle of their career, Mm -hmm. thinking big about who they are in the world, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, leaders in in Raleigh and in in the local area, right? Um, in in the talk, John, I, I, this I really like. This was really a, a, an astute observation, something that really inspired me. And it was that he des, he described how we as Christians focus often on our gifts, mm-hmm. and and that's like a, he he calls it what is it a baptized right, version baptized. of this individual um, uh, cultural mm-hmm. uh, identity that we take on. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you, how are you seeing that play out in the new city fellows? How do they mm-hmm. wrestle with this over a year? Yeah, um, I yeah, I really like that point too, um, and I think it's so true that Christians um, we can kind of follow the same you know uh, obsession with I- individual identity and ex- expression, expressive individualism, but we call it by a different name. We say, "Yo, what are my gifts? What's my my specific calling?" And I, I definitely see it play out in other people's lives, including fellows and so many young people, I'd say. And I've struggled with this, you know, personally myself as I've tried to figure out my gifts and skills and where I'm most, you know, suited to serve the body of Christ and, 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 you know, God's purposes in the world. And it's hard not to think about, you know, Mm -hmm. it's hard not to ask that question. Oh, what are my gifts? What am I uniquely suited to? I don't want to, you know, commit my life in my career to something that I'm not good at or that I, you know, I won't, I won't be happy with, you know, and um, so, so, you know, we, we do, I think it rightly think about this question, but I do think we can also obsess a little too much about it when, because we're, we don't, we don't, um, yeah, see the bigger picture. We don't, we don't focus on God's will period. We, we think about God's will for my life, or we think about what's God's mission for the church as a whole. What's his calling for us as human beings? What is he, how does he want us to live? Love our neighbors, love our community, love our city, love our churches, right? Like we, we think specific, so in, we're, we're so lost in the weeds of what's my specific place my role in that what's my specific you know yeah. how am i suited to do that we can we can miss the whole you know forest and it, it you know to, just to use that language of the body you know uh we're members of the body of christ and we each have unique gifts and skills it's like a body part kind of like like a a, a person being like a finger and being like all right am i a ring finger or am i a middle finger or a pinky and spending their whole spending years thinking thinking about this very question like oh what are my gifts my skills <laughs> rather than being like no like the what's the point of having a hand it's to serve those in need so there's another member of the body and or there's you know someone out there in the world who needs service they need a, a, a cup of cold water you know and so i'm just gonna go i don't care what finger i am i'm just gonna go and serve 
a, a cup of cold water to that person, you know? And mm-hmm. it, it's like, we're so focused on our abilities that we don't tie it to needs and the community and relationships. And we're not living kind of embedded in that way. And so, yeah. yeah. This, this mm-hmm. reminds, oh, I'm so glad you said that. Cause uh, I uh, g- grew up on Christian alternative music, right? We, I was not allowed to <laughs> okay. listen to everything else. We yeah. listened to, you know, Christian alternative music. <laughs> but one of my favorite songs still to this day is a song called Body B by Johnny Q Public, which was like a, a flash in the pan Christian band. Um, I'm sure many of our listeners won't love it, but the lyrics are exactly that. It says, you know, um, where would my body be if we were all an ear or if, we, or, if, or if we were all just the pinky finger? Where is the body? So I'm, I'm so glad you brought that point up. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, so one of the things that I've been trying to do in my own parenting with my kids um, and also in the, in the fellows program as I lead it is to really take, take the, to help people to focus differently on their life. Mm. Not that those questions about where am I going to go to school or should I have a different career change or, or you know, should I do something else? Those, those are valid, mm. but I really want to say what's really important is, 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 your character, what type mm-hmm. of person you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so with my kids, it's like, right, every, you know, you can get in these discussions of where do you want to, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, and then I have a 13-year-old, where do you want to go to school? And I you have nieces and nephews who are starting to go to college. Mm-hmm. I think the real question is, and for me, I'd say, I, I'm not as worried about those or I don't think about those for you as much, guys, as who you will be. Mm-hmm. Who will you be? And it's kind of like, what do you mean? Are you going to be somebody who's brave? Are you going to be somebody who who loves and is compassionate? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are you going to be somebody who whose whose character is is beautiful? Mm-hmm. And and the the only way you're gonna you're gonna ultimately get there, you mm-hmm. know, is through Christ. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't erase anything I said about boasting. It's not. Mm-hmm. But it's ultimately, are you going to be somebody who's, who's humble and strong? Mm-hmm. You know, the, is, are you going to be somebody who looks like our Savior mm-hmm. and who, who, who follows him? Mm-hmm. him? And, and, and so shifting the focus on what success is, mm-hmm. is living our calling as kings and queens, mm-hmm. you know, of the coming kingdom. Mm-hmm. So the the question that I, that I'll ask that um, that hits hits in my heart is how do we graciously or humbly affirm the um, the goodness of being individuals in society, but also uphold a Christian moral ethic, especially in a culture where this sense of identity um, is so uh, strong right right now. Mm-hmm. What, what do you mean when you say the sense of identity is so strong? I mean, you know, people who um, who connect or connect their 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 meaning and purpose to um, a uh, a particular aspect of their life, and how, how do we as a church uh, affirm what's good about individuals and about and about identity in um, in the fact that we're all marked? By uh, in identity in God, um, how do we affirm that, but also uphold a, a strong Christian moral ethic? 
Yeah, I, I, so, so I think we need to, um, we, we have to distinguish, there's a lot there. We have to distinguish between something like uh, sexuality or does this, does, this, does this distinctive thing about this person, does it violate the scriptures in any way? Does it, is it, is it, say, is it, is it going against the scriptures? Um, so I think that's one category. I think, um, but if we're saying somebody is getting their political identity, I mean, if their identity from politics, well, in some sense, that's going up against scripture too. It's, it's idolatry, mm-hmm. right? And um, they're looking f- for what might be um, a partial or temporary good, but not their ultimate identity. And they're making that, that secondary thing uh, their primary identity, and that that's idolatry, and that's going to have fallout. Um, now, again, I, I would even I would even say you could go here with some more controversial things. So, so because at the end of the day, when because we are created in God's image, there's certain there's certain aspects of who who humans are where they're going to be grasping and looking for love. They're going to be grasping and looking for identity. They're going to be pulling and, and, and that's, that's who we are as humans. And so I think there's something, if you dig deep enough, that can be affirmed. Um, but the problem is, is that we're making, um, we're, make, we're pursuing those things in the wrong way. So, was, so I think the search for identity is something as, as, as Christians, we should latch onto in the culture and say, yeah, I, you, okay, you're searching for identity. The problem is where you're going for it is always going to leave you at the end of the, at the end of the day, hollow. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's not stable and you're going to be on this emotional roller coaster. Mm-hmm. And let me explain how, how, and then let me explain how the gospel is good news in light of that. You're right. You have this secure identity. So I, so my approach is not just, I think we've had this approach as Christians. That's like the, um, it's like the whammy approach. And that's a reference to an old game show, but it's just like whammy X. No, don't do that. You're evil. And I, and I think in, you know, a a biblical approach of this using the concept of idolatry is let's dig deeper and see that, Hey, there's this human desire here that is actually part of your creatureliness and 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 yet the problem is it's twisted because of the fall. And 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 the the reason we're not able to do this well uh, right now is because we don't have a functional doctrine of creation in uh, so many of our churches. We haven't thought deeply about creation, and therefore we're stuck at saying. And then because of that, we have a um, a shallow view of redemption. And that's a shallow view of the gospel. And until we kind of recover these bigger pieces of the gospel, we're not actually going to be able to interact well with the different cultural things that happen. Right now, identity is a big one. There's going to probably be other things that come. And, and so we've got to be able to really take theology and then apply it to what's coming at us. And I just don't think we've we've been really trained very well to do that. I'm just talking in general. Mm-hmm. There's, there's churches that have been. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. We're working on this, you know, here at, at Holy Trinity. Um, we're working on this in the fellows program. And so I'm not accusing everyone listening of, of not being able to do this. But um, I, think, I think that's part of the challenge. But 
yeah, the resources I, are there. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, underlining the, the necessity for, for formation, for good Christian formation. Yeah, and it's theology matters, mm. but we need to, to press into the, the myths of our day, the, um, the narratives of our day, and understand what's going on w without a sense of fear or or being reactive we need to be responsive but not but not simply reactive so we need to understand we need to be able to analyze what's going on in order to interact with people mm -hmm. not simply to go around and condemn everyone mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um because ultimately yeah do we need to do we need to cut some do we need to challenge some absolutely but let's remember it's in order to heal mm. You know, we want, this gospel really does, it's powerful. Christ mm -hmm. is powerful. And so, so when we're, we're challenging the kind of myth of modern identity, it's not to put people down to say, it's to say, you're looking for identity in the wrong place. Let me show you how the gospel actually is what you're after and you don't even know it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's a totally different posture. Uh, if we're engaging people. I, and, and we really do have the goods here. We've mm -hmm. just got to learn how to talk to people about it. Mm -hmm. yeah. To learn more about the Center for Public Christianity and what we're doing to equip, connect, and mobilize Christians to seek the common good of our city, please visit us online.